This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We recently spoke to sociologist and labor activist Barry Eidlin in front of a live audience at UTLA in Los Angeles, home of the victorious L.A. teachers' strike in January, about the modest topic, labor, socialism, and the struggle for power. Barry wrote an article in Jacobin on rank-and-file strategy, and his book, Labor and the Class ID in the U.S. and Canada, compares labor's divergent fates in the two countries in order to shed light on the urgent problems facing workers today. Since that book appeared, we've seen a spectacular wave of public sector strikes, mainly teachers, and it is fitting that we are broadcasting from UTLA headquarters where the union built and developed their strategy over four years on the model we first saw in the Chicago epoch-making teacher strike of 2012, which has become the template for successful strikes in the 21st century. More workers were on strikes in 2018 and 19 than in any time since 1986, and not just in the public sector, though the teachers have led the way. This is our topic, and we follow with discussion from our live audience, all when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to our live broadcast at UTLA. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to spend the next 30 to 40 minutes with Barry Eidlin and then open the discussion with you. And the modest topic tonight is labor, socialism, and the struggle for power. And we'd like to think that we go beneath the surface on most of these uh, programs that I do, but tonight we hope to at least scratch the surface on this modest topic. Barry Eidlin, the sociologist and labor activist, as you already heard, teaches at McGill University in Montreal and therefore has the good fortune of being able to work in a country with decent social democratic reforms. So he's here on, get this, a one-year paid parental leave. (laughs) Barry studies class politics and social movements and institutional change, and he's a former head steward for UAW Local 2865. His recent book, Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada, compares labor's divergent fates in the two countries in order to shed light on the urgent problems facing workers today. Barry also has a piece in Jacobin. You can find that at Jacobin Mag online, and it's on rank-and-file strategy. It says, what is the rank-and-file strategy and why does it matter? But since this book has come out, we've seen this spectacular wave of public sector strikes, mainly teachers, and it's fitting that we're broadcasting today from UTLA, which is the headquarters of the teachers' union and the home of the victorious uh, teachers' strike. UTLA patiently built the union and developed their strategy over four years on the model that we first saw in Chicago in the epoch-making teachers' strike, 2012, which has become a kind of template for successful strikes in the 21st century. And after a long drought in terms of strikes in 2018 and 19. There's been an explosion of strikes. In fact, more workers were on strike in the past year than at any time 
since 1986, more than 30 years ago, and I'm not sure if you want to take that in a positive or a negative way. There's both uh, things that you can say. But strikes are now proliferating, and not just in the public sector. We have the Marriott hotel workers, and just this week we've seen the labor action of Uber and Lyft drivers. They had a mass sign-off, which is like a work stoppage, and uh, we're going to be seeing a lot more of those, we hope. But at the heart of the explosion of strikes that has been the rising movement of teachers across the country, which has captured the public imagination. And I mentioned that the great Chicago teacher strike kicked off the wave. Next, there was the stunning succession of teacher strikes in the right-to-work red states controlled by Republicans so that they were technically illegal and called wildcat. And finally, we have here, the teacher strike wave that's come to California in a blue state with a historic strike right here in Los Angeles at the LA Unified uh, School District, the second biggest in the country, and then Oakland and now, you know, Sacramento teachers have voted to go on strike. It hasn't happened yet. But the wave continues, and I think you can say that labor is back, or at least we hope so, and that's what we're going to discuss. So, Barry, welcome. Glad to be here, Susie. Thanks. Now, what we've seen, as you know, has been this characteristic feature in, in labor history, which is like a discontinuous upsurge after a long, fallow period. That is, the labor movement kind of moves in spikes and waves. It's not continuous. So what do you think accounts for this wave of teacher strike? What's behind it, and how would you account for it? Well... It's always hard to, there's always a confluence of factors that lead to any particular upsurge. I think that people can only be ground down so much before they start fighting back. And then there's a trigger. So in this case, like in West Virginia, there was the right to work laws in 2016. There was the cutbacks to their health care, and, the, and that sort of reaches a breaking point. So it's always hard, impossible indeed, to predict when you're going to have this takeoff like this. What's more interesting, I think, for people to think about is figuring out what are the preconditions that made it possible. And when you have these movements that seem like these spontaneous upsurges, when you scratch beneath the surface, it's never spontaneous. There's always some structure that underlies that upsurge. So in this case, you know, if we look back, you know, just take the West Virginia example, there was school building level organization with a core of actually several DSA members uh, at the core of much of that that were not just putting out messages on Facebook, although they did that, but actually building, talking to people in the schools, getting people lined up, and getting people on board with this collective project. And then here in L.A., it's a, even much more explicit where... You know, you have this rank-and-file reform movement that takes over the union in 2014 and sets to work almost five years ago, putting in the work of building an infrastructure that allows for the explosion to take place. So it's always hard to tell when the explosion is going to happen, but what's important to recognize is you need to be, in thinking strategically about labor, is what are you doing in the fallow period 
to build the infrastructure so that you're ready when that upsurge does occur. Great. I'm going to continue in the vein of the teacher strikes, and then we'll move on to sort of more within the labor history that you bring up in your book, Barry Eidlin. So while we've been giddy with the excitement and justifiably celebrating these strikes and victories, big failures have also occurred, and uh, serious weaknesses have emerged. So the most worrying failure, I guess you could say, I don't know if that's the right word that we want to use, but it's the wave of school closures that followed the successful teachers' action in uh, Chicago. It looked like this was Rahm Emanuel's retaliation against the successful teachers' strike, which then turned around and closed 50 to 54 schools, and really in some ways undercuts the gains of the strikes by doing that. And now we have in Oakland, after a successful strike that they put together in just six months, not four years, and gained the support of the population of the Bay Area. The picket lines were spirited and festive, but then we find out that the Oakland School Board plans to go ahead with school closures, but they're going to study it for five months and then roll it out in August when teachers are not yet back. So this is a big issue that, you know, now unions and the strike wave are going to have to deal with. But the other one, I'm going to mention two of them and then see if you can come back to both of them. The other big issue is that after we've seen the way that they've organized and won in Los Angeles and in Oakland, you still have the problem that is not able to be resolved at the local level or at the district level. And that, of course, is the level of the state. And in some ways, that's why you could say the red state strikes that were directly political and against the state and not against the school boards and school districts had a a tiny advantage. And that's because of the way funding is done. And so you have a great victory of the strike, but you still then have to go to the state legislature to pry the money out. And that's critically important to be able to raise funding for public education. That was a very big part of this strike and what made it so popular. So that means you have to have a political strategy for the state. And then the other side of it, which we saw in this strike, was the issue of charterization or privatization. And that also has to be taken on by the state. That was incredibly successful here in Los Angeles. And now it's spread so that people are now distrustful of charters where they were openly pro and didn't quite understand it. Now now people are second-guessing on that. But that also, again, can't just be dealt with at a local level and through a local strike. So those are giant questions, Barry. Let's hear if you can at least respond and how you think teachers' unions should respond. Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind here is that even strikes that win don't win everything, that these are settlements. They're called settlements for a reason, and you don't always win everything. The question is how ready are you to fight the next battle coming out of that strike? So in the case of Chicago, yes, Rahm Emanuel goes and shuts down a bunch of schools afterwards, but we have a transformed Chicago's teacher union that is now much more of a strong political voice in the city, and is much more mobilized. And, you know, same here in L.A., right? Again, you need to look beneath the surface of what happens because people change after these strikes and structures change after these strikes. So while we all pay attention when there's tens of thousands of people marching in the streets, we also need to understand how that changes what happens when people go back to work. And the balance of forces is 
fundamentally changed after these victories, even if they don't win everything. So I think we can go back to the West Virginia example as a great example of that, right? Because last year they had their strike that beat back the cuts to health care, got themselves a pay raise across the board, and for not just teachers, but for all state employees. That's a key part of it. And then this year, when the legislature tried to sort of sneak back these cuts into their budget, they were ready to go, and it just took a one-day strike for the government, for the legislature to back down. So that sort of gets at what we need to be doing is that you don't pause just because you win a major victory. You keep building, you keep organizing off of those victories. Okay, so then we still have now yet another problem, and of course that's the political structure that we have here in this country. So it raises the question of politics and political power, and I know for all of you this is a really big issue. Um, And for Blue State California, it means what do we do about the Democratic Party? So as people know, the Democrats have been at the heart of the movement by the U.S. elite uh, for the so-called education reform. And uh, that means, you know, that what we saw in Chicago with Rahm Emanuel and then, of course, with uh, Arne Duncan, who under Obama raised it to a national level. And that is to continue with the so-called reform that means defunding public education, charterization and privatization, teaching to the test, standardized tests. And that, of course, there's been a bipartisan consensus on this kind of education reform. We remember uh, George W. Bush's No uh, Child Left Behind and Teacher Accountability, but it was taken up in the same way, literally, by Obama with with some few differences. So basically, I'm raising this, uh, Barry Eidlin, because we have a problem with the Democratic Party. And your work uh, has been how in Canada there emerged a a party that was independent, an independent party of labor known as the New Democratic Party, at the same time in the United States that Democrats consolidated their position as representatives of labor. So can you talk a little bit about the reasons for the difference in outcomes between the United States and Canada, where there's no labor party here, and there's a labor party there, but there's a party posing as a party of labor here. It just isn't. And what does this mean for the struggles of working people, such as the teacher strike wave that we're seeing now? Well, before we get to that, I just want to point out, going back to the teacher strike issue, is one of the massive effects of the teacher strike wave has been a complete breakdown, explosion of the consensus around charterization, uh, in the sense that, you know, when you had Obama and Arne Duncan sort of all you know, joining up with Republicans and charter schools being this bipartisan issue. Um, none of the presidential candidates now that are serious contenders are talking about charter schools as some great thing. And indeed, are you know whether or not what they whether they say what they mean, they still feel the need to speak out in favor of of, of public education. So that's one thing. Now, yes, the question of political representation. So the U.S. famously is this country that lacks a labor party. It's been a sort of puzzle for generations upon generations of, of scholars, whereas Canada has uh, this, this NDP. And I want to be clear, especially to an American audience, not to romanticize the NDP. The NDP, just like most social democratic parties across the industrialized world, has drifted to the right. When it's been in office, it's attacked workers, 
Um, it's engaged in austerity budgets in Alberta right now. They're really pro-pipeline. I mean, this is not some panacea for a sort of working-class vision that we are fighting for. But, and this is the big but, as I say in one of my other Jacobin pieces, the only thing worse than having a sort of bourgeois sellout, mealy-mouthed Social Democratic Party is not having a bourgeois, mealy-mouthed Social Democratic Party. Now, why is that? Because despite the many shortcomings of the NDP, its very presence in the political realm as a serious political party helps to organize politics around this idea that class is this thing that matters, that workers are this constituency that actually has a voice in the political process. Whereas in the United States, as a result of labor being absorbed into the Democratic Party, its interests, when they, uh, when they sort of get translated into the political realm, can be dismissed as the interests of a special interest group. That's something that you might often hear when you listen to the news. And so this legitimacy that's granted to class-based demands when you have a labor party is really something that we can't, um, that we can't underestimate. And the fact that the existing labor parties have, uh, you know, been reticent to maybe, you know, give full-throated voice to that doesn't change the fact that there's at least the opportunity there. Now, the, the, to go back to what I talk about in the book, the interesting thing there is that, um, you know, labor's sort of more favorable condition that ends up in Canada relative to the U.S. Um, is actually the result of the government sort of taking a much more hostile anti-union response at this critical moment in the 1930s and 40s when in the U.S., Roosevelt and the New Deal Democrats were actually reaching out to labor and incorporating them and granting them certain reforms. So in Canada, the fact that you had a government that was sort of vowed, literally the prime minister vowed to crush labor, labor upsurge under the iron heel of ruthlessness in the 1930s, uh, and as a result, Canadian labor had to fight for at least a decade longer to get many of the same reforms that they did in the U.S. But when they did, uh, it was forcibly extracted from a reluctant state under the threat of a surging left party that the, that the labor movement had, had, had been pushed into the arms of because they had no potential partner amongst the main ruling parties in Canada. So that's really the, the, the crux around which all of this turns. Okay, so then to go back to the United States then on this issue, um, not only have we had a union movement that lacked a political party, but our union movement in this country has been unstintingly in favor of supportive of the Democratic Party. So doing massive turnout the vote work, being the canvassers, being the field operation, uh, so that so much so that um, during the elections, the Democratic Party is dependent on the labor movement and the labor movement is dependent on the, on, uh, the Democratic Party to achieve its goals. And at the core of this dependence uh, is labor officialdom, the overwhelming dominance of the labor bureaucracy of the uh, U.S. labor movement. So for labor bureaucrats, getting Democrats elected has been a substitute for class struggle in winning gains for workers. And labor officials want, above all, 
to avoid again engaging in class struggle because their own union organization is the basis of their livelihood, their salaries, their way of life. They don't want to rock the boat. So um, they don't want to endanger uh, the organization that nourishes them confronting by confronting employers. So instead, they uh, turn to just supporting the Democrats during the elections, uh, getting them elected in the hopes that the Democrats will actually do policies to improve the condition of working people, uh, health care, uh, infrastructure, pensions, vacations, and at least, and not least, uh, public education and public services. So, ironically, uh, we've seen the Democrats have, uh, on the other hand, been long committed to neoliberalism, with the result that the Democratic Party has supported, as we've seen, the neoliberal program of education reform. And so, you know, there's been this terrible relationship. And so, but speaking about this uh, labor bureaucracy raises a huge issue of understanding labor and the future of today's labor upsurge. So it would be great if you could talk about, you know, officialdom, the bureaucracy, and any aspect that you really want. For example, what has been the role of labor officials with respect to the teacher strike? Uh, why does the existence of the labor bureaucracy make necessary? A rank and file strategy, something that you've written about in Jacobin. And why is it important to organize rank and file organizations independent of the bureaucracy? Like, for example, something you know quite well, Teamsters for a Democratic Union or TDU. Yeah. Okay, these are Great questions. Um, the first thing I want to emphasize is this problem of the labor bureaucracy exists on both sides of the border, right? So I don't want yeah. to give the impression that there's some sort of like militant, organic sort of rank and file movement that's sort of surging in Canada compared to this sort of bureaucratized, uh, stultified uh, U.S. labor movement. That's not at all the case. And you know, and in Canada, you have the problem both at the level of the union officialdom and the party officialdom of the, of, the, of the NDP. Again, having said that, it's about what the opportunities that are created in the, uh, the, the structures that, and the opportunities that those structures create in both countries that matter. So in Canada, um, again, as a result of this sort of historic divergence that starts in the 1930s and 40s, one of the uh, one of the knock-on effects of that is that when you get to the 1950s and, 19, and you get McCarthyism here in, in in the U.S. in Canada, you also get a red scare. You have a purge of the left from labor in Canada. The big difference is that because in Canada you have the precursor to the NDP, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation or CCF, um, they are the ones that actually lead the the purges in labor. In Canada, ironically, not. and 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 so this is bad on one hand because you have this Labour Party that's sort of purging these reds. But the other effect of it is that they keep a lid on it, right? They keep it from getting out of hand the way you have with McCarthyism here. And so, and then also because you don't have a Taft-Hartley Act, um, the left unions that are expelled from the labor federations in Canada are able to continue their existence. All this is to say that, as a result, the link between labor and the left is severed in the U.S., but merely strained in Canada. And so what that means is that when you get to the 1960s and the new left, while both 
new lefts, uh, you know, are largely student-led, which is a historic difference between the new left and what came before. They're not based in the working class. The fact that you have a sort of latent link between labor and the left means that a lot of the new left emerges in dialogue with the labor movement in Canada. And what that does is that that lends a more social movement tinge to the Canadian labor movement, which means that it retains more of its fighting capacity. So whereas the new left in the U.S., uh, to the extent it dealt with labor, was much more of an opponent, you know, uh, on, the, on questions of Vietnam War, um, imperialism, that, that, that kind of thing, and just, you know, being like very conservative uh, reactionary institutions. In Canada, a lot of the new left was emerging within the labor movement. And that transformed labor into more of a, a, a militant fighting organization. So when you get to the 1970s um, and you get this upsurge in both countries, as you can see here from, um, for, for those listening at home, there's a graph here that has strike data. Um, you can go look online. The strike wave is basically suppressed in the U.S., by this labor bureaucracy, whereas in Canada, it's not like they're super enthusiastic about it, I would say, although some are, but uh, there's, a, there, there's not as much of a blockage there. And so that social movement character of the labor movement sort of maintains itself in Canada more, although you know, it's certainly dropped off in recent years. Great. And of course, it's more of a contrast than of what existed here at the same time. And you mentioned Taft-Hartley, and of course, that's the strike back against the Wagner Act and the ability of the American working class at the height of uh, labor mobilization uh, to have the right to unionize. And Taft-Hartley rolled it back in ways that we're all familiar with. But what's interesting is that um, while the American labor movement has its hands tied behind its back by labor law, every Democratic president has promised to do something about that. But they always say, like, in my second term, come to me in the second term, because right now I got, you know, all these other problems. So first it's like, you know, cutting back on, say, sympathy strikes or, uh, I don't know, some of the other issues. But um, then we got the Employee Free Choice Act that, you know, languished through Clinton and Obama. And both of them said, get it to my desk and I'll sign it, um, knowing that, of course, they won't and it, and it won't. So, of course, that is another kind of contrast that we bring up. But that takes us to um, this final sort of area that I want to talk about, and that's the election coming up and the Bernie Sanders candidacy, something that we're all thinking about. And that's really the specter that's haunting the Democrats. And, it, <laughs> and it's haunting their commitment to neoliberalism and the labor union's uh, commitment to the Democratic Party. So this is, of course, Bernie Sanders' fight. And he had the, I think, genius to run in the Democratic Party against the Democratic Party establishment, and they've never forgiven him for it. And um, so that is going to be the fight that started in 2016 <laughs> and has continued now and will be the fight in 2020, I guess we call it. Um, and Sanders is flat out oppo opposing the Democratic Party's politics by calling for a set of policies that go directly against the neoliberal consensus. 
And that means, and he's not the only one now, we have a whole cohort in Congress arguing for the same thing. So we've got Medicare for all, free education for all at public uh, colleges and universities, and the Green New Deal, and other things as well. And at the same time, he's been supporting the new wave of militant unionism. And so it's very significant that Bernie shows up at every picket line and supports the strikes and lends his support to inspiring today the new organizers, as we saw in the Red Teacher strikes. And, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking about the success of McCarthyism, and this is just a little additional point, because McCarthyism did sever that link. And it also meant it was so successful that labor and political organizers were intimidated to the extent that they didn't pass on their labor stories to their kids. And so one of the things that I found really inspiring uh, was that in Mingo County of West Virginia, some of the uh, strike leaders had grandfathers who were in the Cold Wars. That was the basis of the film Mate One. If you haven't seen it, you got to see it. So anyway, with all of that, could you give your assessment of the Sanders candidacy and the movement and the, its significance for the combativity of labor, the revival of the labor movement? Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say about the labor law reform question and why the Democrats sort of consistently fail um, to enact it. And that goes back to this sort of fundamental difference between the U.S. and Canada and the way that they won their labor law reforms, right? And so in the U.S., to the extent that labor has been able to win anything, it gets portrayed as this sort of payoff to a Democratic Party special interest group. And so that basically blocks the possibility of legislative reform because any time it comes up, it's sort of, you know, it's basically this sort of transactional deal-making and labor just doesn't have the clout within the Democratic Party coalition plus going up against the Republicans who are basically going to reject anything to actually get that across the finish line. Whereas in Canada because of the conditions under which labor law was won, where it was sort of forcibly extracted from a reluctant state, um, even people who are anti politicians who are anti-union in Canada at least understand the importance of having a functioning labor relations machinery and, so, and the need to sort of tinker with it every now and then. And so you do get regular labor law reform to fix things when it comes up. So, so with that aside... so. The current political situation is really quite interesting um, and unique within the sort of past century of political action in the U.S. because every sort of effort, so there's been this sort of long-standing effort to sort of this idea that we can sort of reform the Democratic Party somehow, uh, and it's always come to naught. Um, this is another graph you'll find in the book that sort of shows uh, this, these third-party efforts in the U.S. going back to the mid-19th century. And as you can see, the blue line here shows that, you know, up until the mid-1930s, there were these small but significant efforts to sort of challenge the Democratic Party that basically get wiped out once you get the, 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 the Democratic, once you get the New Deal coalition cemented in the mid-1930s, whereas in Canada, that more hostile response sort of leads to this takeoff of the CCF. And after that, incorporation in the 1930s. There's been this sort of repeated efforts that like, oh, maybe we can drag the, the, the Democratic Party to the left, create a labor party within it or something like that, realign the Democratic Party. It goes through all sorts of different iterations. And at every time what ends up happening is these movements just get sucked back into the Democratic Party and you get more of the same. Um, and, you know, 
we're way too early in this process to know whether we're going to have the same thing with with Bernie. The th- difference that I see here, because there have been plenty of candidates who have sort of you know talked uh, a good game in terms of sort of standing up for you. You know, you think about the Jackson campaign that in the 1980s, Jackson campaigns in the 1980s. Um, you have plenty of progressive candidates. The thing that I see as different about Bernie is the permeability of his campaign to social movement struggle in that he actually has this understanding that is very different from previous politicians that he needs he needs militant social movements backing him up to get anything that he's going to win. And he actively promotes that. So if you thought about the, the Wabtec strike in Pennsylvania recently – it was a, a relative victory in the scheme of things, but they lost, you know, they lost their pensions. Um, but uh, they won way more than they would have uh, if they hadn't fought. Bernie actually used his text messaging software to get Bernie supporters to text <laughs> Wabtec management, right? So he's actually using his campaign infrastructure to support um, working class struggle. And then, needless to say, uh, you know, to the people here in this room, I mean, a lot of the sort of uh, upsurge in DSA is a result of Bernie's campaign in the Democratic Party, building a left that's independent of the Democratic Party. And so to the extent that a Bernie candidacy will continue to do that, um, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens with the Democratic Party itself because they're, regardless of what happens, they're going to have to answer to a stronger independent left. And that's really what matters here is not necessarily getting the right people in office. I, don't, I think we need to sort of get away from thinking about, like, is this candidate more progressive than this candidate? The question we need to ask is, what are we doing to create a movement that's going to demand accountability from the people who are in office regardless of who they are? We need to remember that the West Virginia teachers won the, what they did from the same legislature that had passed a right-to-work law two years prior and that has gutted their wage and hour violations the year prior. They didn't magically get a whole new legislature elected. No, they created a mass movement that forced those very same conservative legislatures to create a crisis that those legislators had to respond to. And that's what, I need, what we need to be thinking about in terms of what the left's engagement with a political strategy is. Wow. Okay. So it looks like what we need is a rank and file strategy and uh, a mass movement. And we already are so, I guess, um, fortunate that we have a candidate who understands it. uh, And that'll raise all kinds of other questions that we can bring up in uh, discussion. But I want to tell you that this book is available, Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada by Barry Eidland, who teaches at McGill University and is lucky enough because of the gains that they have there that they actually give them one-year paid parental leave. Just think about that, especially those of you who are parents here in the U.S., where if you're lucky, you'll get two weeks um, (laughs) and probably uh, unpaid as well. So... um, Barry, thank you for that. And we're going to open it up now to your questions and discussion. Okay, so let's get an indication if people want to ask questions or make comments, and then we'll take them. So McGill has some of the most like historically and currently like militant students. Um, I mean, arguably, the 
the, just the difference between tuition at McGill for in province versus tuition at University of Toronto mm -hmm. is massive. U, U of T is almost double. Um, but kids still like siphon out like every four to six years. And I'm just wondering uh, when we're looking at student strikes both in the States or what Ontario is facing now with uh, the cuts education Doug Ford is making, how do you create a culture that can keep tuition down when the organizing base graduates every four years? Yeah. Um, oh, we have some, some, some Canadians in the audience. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I'm. <laughs> no, no, I always uh, I, when I speak to an American audience, the baseline knowledge of Canada is, is such that I often feel like oh, I can talk about you know like the the great alien invasion of 1973, and people will just sort of like let it pass. But uh, you know, but anyway, um, no. But this is a great question, and 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 this is I think actually uh, speaks m less so to. U.S.-Canada differences and actually more about the specificity of the Quebec student movement. Um, and actually within Quebec, McGill is on the more conservative side. Um, it's really the francophone schools like UCAM, the Université de Québec, um, that, that are the leaders of the student movement. And I think that the key difference um, that handles this problem of the consistent churn of the student movement is the infrastructure that dates back to the 1960s. I have students working on, on this very question. Um, and the way that the, first of all, that the, the, the student unions in Quebec are actually modeled after labor unions. They actually, uh, they're not just these sort of student associations. They actually are modeled after labor unions. And they have a history going back to the 1960s of consistent struggle. So every few years, there's a massive student strike. So even if you know you have a new cohort coming in, it's just it's always just a few years after the last strike. There's always a few people left over from that strike who at least know what what to do, and so they can reproduce that militancy that is the key reason that, as you said, you know, tuition is as low as it is. More questions. question I had planned. Um, as a student organizer um, for YDSA, where um, are you organizing? At uh, Santa Monica College, started the chapter last fall. Um, I thought a lot about, and we've read it's in the or you know the organizing guide for YDSA about the Quebec, the most recent 2012 Quebec um, strike, mass you know uh, the Maple strike. Spring. Yes, and um, and I was going to mention how the 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 interesting uh, thing referencing the talking about the differences between the two countries and the structural conditions and preconditions necessary to build mass movements about though uh, how they're structured as labor unions and have genu genuine collective bargaining uh, powers um, I was my question uh, to that end was was how what do you think um, in observing I guess go having to go all the way back to the conditions that got the students to get that structure in the first place that we can learn um, and build, you know, a movement. Um, also, I guess, how labor, they, you know, the pre-NLRA uh, uh, labor movements and, and mm -hmm. um, I guess what we can learn on, on those ends and in that analysis of you know, students. Yeah, I mean, this really gets to the heart of sort of what I hope the argument about the book um, gets at, which is 
this idea of what do we do to, I mean, the, the broader question I would take from your question is, you know, how do we revive the class idea in, in the United States, right? And the, this idea basically being that, you know, there's this thing called the working class that has this power to transform society and that has a sort of uh, set of, of interests that are distinct from, you know, fr from a capitalist class um, and actually organizing our politics around that idea, right? Um, and you know, because, the, I mean, you know, the, the way that you get a student movement like you do in Quebec is, you know, it's a, it's, it's a movement that has, you know, working class struggle at the heart of it, you know, that puts that at the center of its organizing. And so I think you need to have sort of this idea of the working class and class struggle sort of at the heart of, of, of the organizing that we do. Um, and, uh, and, that, and that's obviously not something that we can just will into existence. It comes out of a specific historical conjuncture, right, in the sense that you had this massive upsurge in class struggle in Quebec that was tacked, it was like happening in conjunction with a national liberation struggle, uh, you know, with the, the, the sort of Quebecois national identity sort of taking shape and transforming Quebecois society. Um, and so you had the sort of overlap of class and national struggle in a particular way that doesn't happen here. You know, and actually, if you think about sort of possibilities for that, uh, you know, you think about like the civil rights movement here in the U.S., uh, which indeed was actually, to some extent, its gains were limited by the fact that the class and national struggles were not, uh, be because, because uh, you know, of you know, going back to this McCarthyism thing, one of the negative uh, effects of, of, of purging the left from the labor movement was the fact that it interrupted and demolished labor's role as this early civil rights movement. And so, so you had this, this disjuncture between sort of class organizing and, um, you know, anti-racist organizing um, in the U.S. So I think that, 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 you know, if we're thinking about, I mean, this is all much more abstract than I think your question was. Um, but I think that, um, you know, the, the, the key task that we as the left face now which is easier said than done, and this goes back, I didn't really get to the question about the rank-and-file strategy, but it's really relinking this severed relationship between labor, the working class, and the left. That really is the sort of core strategic goal we need to have at this moment. And whether it's in our student organizing, our housing organizing, our homeless organizing, you know, um, what, what, you know, healthcare organizing, it has to have as its strategic goal sort of relinking the you know the, the left and the working class. Do I see a question in the back? Sure. I think this is a fun question. Um, uh, so do, do you think that we're still recovering uh, from McCarthyism on the left and do you think that we're resurging back to the point where we're maybe picking up the pieces where we were during you know the New Deal maybe? You're a historian right so Okay, wait, and then we'll take your question. Both of you all mentioned the Bernie campaign and how Bernie Sanders is different from other candidates in that he's on the picket line and actively engaging with social movements. You also both mentioned that the transformative nature of mass action you know, the Los Angeles strike, the West Virginia strike. Do you think 
that Bernie in his campaign for president should try to in you know uh, support mass actions or or in any way to support the planks of his platform, and if so, how? Oh yeah, I don't need this because I'm pretty loud, but thank you. No, I need it. Oh, sorry. Oh, um, so I, I was I was wondering, um, how do you have a sustainable and flourishing um, labor movement in the United States that's um, anti-imperialist and anti-militarism in general? Like addressing the like the the local issues with militarism in the United States and and also countering imperialism. Thank you. Should we take those then, and then we'll come back? I'll do this side of the room next. Okay, great. And I see some linkages between these these uh, these three questions, so I think I can sort of answer them at the same time. So, the short answer is yes. We are suffering from the the, the after effects of McCarthyism still, and the, the, that goes back to my key point really about this severing of the relationship between labor and the left. We need to keep in mind this is a historic uh, fact that. Um, you know, prior to the new left of the 1960s, every single left movement in the United States, it didn't just relate to the working class. It didn't just talk about the working class. It was the working class, right? The Socialist Movement, the Communist Party, the Knights of Labor, the Wobblies, these movements were made up of working class people, and it's only after the new left that we have this situation that we now face where we approach labor and the working class to a large extent, as outsiders. And there isn't this tradition of labor struggle in the workplace that, that is sort of part of our sort of shared understanding of how to do politics. And that is a, has really been crippling to us, and that's why it's so urgent to repair that link. That is one of the aftershocks that goes back to this question about imperialism, right, is that, you know, when you have you know, the, the, the left purged from the labor movement, you know, you, who's left in the leadership but these sort of right-wing troglodytes um, like George Meany, who are these big, you know, Vietnam War hawks. And then Kirkland. And Lane Kirkland, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, we don't need to get too much into the history, but, you know, I mean, like, th- that's really where you get this sort of, you know, labor as a sort of reactionary force, you know, for, for on the international stage really ramping up. Um, and, you know, to their credit, you know, I mean, I think the, the current labor leadership is a bit better on these things, you know, particularly on the immigration question. You know, certainly uh, there's, there's a long way to go on the um, anti-imperialism front. But there's at least you're not fighting the outright enemy like, the, like you were uh, a few decades ago. And then to get to Dan's uh, question about, about uh, Bernie, I mean, I, I, I would argue to some extent that he is doing that, right, that he is supporting mass action. I, just, I talked about the Wabtec example earlier. But, you know, if we go back to just a few weeks ago when, when Bernie visited the picket lines here t- for the Upti strike, uh, which some of our, our, our comrades were, were on the picket line, you know, he came and addressed the strike. And there's a lot of politicians that come and address picket lines. They happen all the time, right? And what's the standard script when a politician comes to the picket line? They say something nice about the workers and how they support them and how they support collective bargaining, maybe, if we're lucky. And they might say something about labor law reform. And then they go and give their stump speech. What did Bernie do? Well, he, came, he spent the, almost the entirety of his remarks talking about the conditions facing striking workers at UCLA. And not only that, 
But he said, I wish that I could tell you that what's happening here is unique, but it's not. It's happening everywhere. So he was directly linking the struggles of the workers in the University of California to a broader struggle that workers are facing nationwide. If that's not uh, supporting mass action, I don't know what is. Great. Okay, so we'll go over here, and then I'll come back over here. To what extent is the widening uh, income gaps and the widening um, disparities also it's affected working class people in terms of you have some workers, unionized workers, making five and six times you know, minimum wage workers. And how has that affected sort of the development of, of militant unionism? Oh, great. Okay. Thank you. Um, it's more it's more of a, a comment and perhaps discussion for folks to think about, which is like how socialists can and should be involved in the the labor movement. Um, I think in part what happened with the labor movement in the United States um, wasn't just McCarthyism; it was also a linkage of the socialists to the Democratic Party by the Communist Party. And, and supporting the Democratic Party as opposed to political independence. So it wasn't just that they kicked people out. The organization, the CIO, which was the largest union, was run by the Communist Party, and they pushed people into the Democratic Party. I mean, it was, they, were, they were the biggest and most militant workers, and they pushed them into the Democratic Party. And there hasn't been much of a, of a recovery since then. And I guess, like a... The, the 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 graph changed but since when i looked at it and it's a really good graph um from 1957 to the present it's been a pretty much flat line and and during that time there have been democrats that have spoken or acted more left than others i'd say probably bernie sanders has been more left but to me it seems like the same story it seems like the same person who, you know, is more, is better domestically, but in terms of foreign policy, isn't all that great. Um, it seems like he is still, you know, we're still in the political organization of Goldman Sachs. We're still in the political organization of the banks and the, and the capitalists. And I guess my thinking as a socialist, uh, as, you know, a person who's worked in unionized workplaces and things like that is – when are we going to demand that we fight for politics in our own name as socialists? I do think that it is important from what you're saying. Um, what did you say? You, like, you said it's, I mean, I'm sure you were not being totally literal, but like that it's not important who's in power if we have the power. Um, I think there's to some extent it's true that if we force, you know, if we have enough force, we can make the whatever political organization do what we will but it does matter if we aren't running on our own political platforms i think it does matter because we as socialists at this time in particular really have an opportunity to be saying well what would a socialist candidate do not what would a democrat do that's claimed socialist politics um and you know i'm not, I'm not saying this to be like antagonistic. I'm really saying this because we're in a room of socialists and we're deci deciding and discussing what to do. And, and I feel like with the Sanders campaign, although it's more left than a lot of Democrats have been in most recent years, it isn't what we represent as socialists because it isn't against capitalism. 
I mean, he's not, and he's running in a, a political organization of capitalists. So I just wanted people. I, I wanted to say that because I felt like I should, um, and I wanted to know your your response and other people's responses too. So just a kind of tiny question, right? Sorry, <laughs> it's a good one. If you'd been alive in the '60s um, and right after detente, and the Communist Party was, you know, completely befuddled after detente. And um, I remember in one demonstration in New York uh, that Brezhnev, of course, the ultimate conservative anti-worker head of the Soviet Union, apparently had enough uh, influence over the Communist Party that they went on a a demonstration with the banner, meaning trade means jobs. And the message was that they were going to support Nixon and not the Democratic candidate. Interesting. Um, I have a friend who worked at a small brewery that got bought out by a big golden road. They got bought out by a Budweiser. And so the wages doubled, like over two and a half times the wages doubled. And so workers tend to think, you know, to get ahead, uh, you know, rather rather than fight, just get get, get in the DOPP and you make six figures a year. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the point. Yeah, okay. So, 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 so these are two really important questions. So this first one here, I think about, you know, how do this question of growing inequality and sort of why unions matter for sort of as, a, as a strategy for addressing that. First of all, you can see this relationship between sort of when unions are strong, there's less inequality. And, but then the mechanism of how that works. Because I think that what you talked about there with these people sort of saying, why fight back when I can, you know, go down the road and um, you know, make twice as much. That's basically an individual strategy for combating you know, the problem that I face of low wages or what have you, as opposed to a collective strategy. And when you live in a world where you have you know, 10% union density like you do in the U.S. now, and most people don't know what a union is and most people don't have experience with unions, the idea that you can actually act collectively to better your situation seems like this distant, far-off thing that doesn't really make much sense. Even if someone sits there and sort of talks you through it, it's far off there. And in those kind of situations, it's a much more rational response just to say, I'm just going to do what I can to get by and just act in my own self-interest. And yeah, it's not necessarily going to be ideal um, but I'll just take it because of this whole collective action thing, like I just, it doesn't even, either it doesn't occur to you, or if it does, it just sounds pretty wacky. Whereas if you're in a world with, you know, you know, 30, 40% union density, what does that mean concretely to the lives of most people? It means that most people probably know someone who's in a union, you know, might have known, you know, what, what they do. And there's just much more of a culture of sort of doing things collectively. And so that sort of uh, an acting as a class, right? Because that's the thing that unions do is that they organize people as workers, as part of a thing called the working class. And so having that experience really changes your sense of what's possible in the world. So that's, I think, the, the, the key thing. Now, this question, so there's actually two parts to your comment. The number one part, the first part was this question of how do we relate to uh, you know, how should socialists relate to the labor movement? And then there is how should socialists relate to the political realm? So very, uh, you, know, you know, trivial issues. 
Um, you know, so, uh, and these are, th this really gets to the crux of it, right? And so I think, so to tackle the first question, so this is what I talk about in the Jacobin piece on the rank and file strategy. Um, and so the, the glib answer is that you can read my article, uh, but I don't want to be glib. Uh, so the, the, the key thing here, it goes back to what I've been saying about rebuilding the link between labor and the left. Now, and that sort of, and what a rank and file strategy means is that that is the strategic goal of re rebuilding this, this broken link. Now, there are various tactics that flow from such a strategy. Um, one that various, the previous generations and, and now current generations have tried is actually, you know, making a concerted effort to take jobs in strategic industries that, um, where you can sort of build worker power um, in, in those industries. So nowadays we're talking, you know, like the DSA, youth, uh, YDSA and the DSA Labor Commission issued this pamphlet about sort of teachers' struggles and sort of like joining the, the, the teachers' unions. Um, in previous generations, it was about joining the Teamsters or Teamster jobs or auto jobs or, or steel jobs or something like that. And there's been a lot of back and forth about this kind of tactic as part of a rank-and-file strategy. And the best we can say at this point is it's been a mixed bag, right? Um, you know, they're, they're, and, and the thing that it ignores is that even at 50,000 members or 60,000 members, you know, and then whatever, like, you know, uh, additional hundreds or thousands are on top of that that sort of consider themselves part of this socialist left, um, is not going to populate the working class is not in a, you know that 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 you know we're talking about when we talk about rebuilding a labor left link we're talking about embedding ourselves in a movement of millions right and um so the there's just not enough people we're, we're not we, we 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 can't just be talking about re redeploying the existing set of committed socialists into various parts of the working class we need to talk about what are we doing to actually create more socialism within the working class. Um, and, and, that's, and how does that happen? I mean, there's no easy recipe for it. But the th types of things that we've been seeing with these strike waves is one way that that happens because people's consciousness changes as a result of engaging in struggle. And they become more open to ideas about collective action and more, co more open to ideas about actually changing um, the world. Um, and now, in terms of how we relate to politics, I think you know it, you're, you're absolutely right to focus on the sort of very um, problematic role of the Communist Party in the 1930s and 40s. But it's also a very complicated role because while the Communist Party line was this sort of united front or po popular front line against fascism and sort of which in practice mean, meant <coughs> allying with what they viewed as the progressive wing of bourgeois liberalism um, and degenerated from there. Um, at the same time, the layer of Communist Party cadre on the shop floors, um, while there, there were some that sort of went along with the party line, there were also a lot that remain these sort of militant rank-and-file fighters, and their getting kicked out of the labor movement was devastating. Um, and so having that layer, you know, what some people call a militant minority, um, 
which was made up of a lot of Communist Party members, like CP, communists, as well as Trotskyists and socialists and other kinds of... And anarcho-syndicalists. And anarcho-syndicalists, you know. And non-socialists. Um, you know, the, having them in the labor movement made a huge difference. And that's sort of what, what we need to be thinking about in terms of a rank-and-file strategy for re- rebuilding links between labor and the left. And then in terms of how it relates to politics, right? I mean, I think, yeah, th- this whole Bernie phenomenon is a really contradictory phenomenon precisely because, yeah, he's running in this, the party of Goldman Sachs and finance and what, what have you. Um, and again, I would point to what are the kinds of openings that a Sanders candidacy creates or that an AOC in Congress creates, right? Or a Rashida Tlaib, you know? Um, you know, and, and the fact that you, you know, as, as imperfect, you know, we can sort of say, you know, he needs to say more about imperialism or he needs to, you know, come out more in defense of sex workers or he needs to come out more, um, you know, on whatever issue, you know, the core thing is what are the opportunities that, that having a Sanders in the political realm creates? Because you're right that it's not just – we can't just be sort of movementist. We can't just be sort of – we need to build this militant movement that's just going to hold politicians accountable. Having these politicians actually in the political realm makes a difference too. And, but it's not, it's not the way that we think political politicians make a difference by sort of, you know – passing progressive legislatures like that. It's because you have someone, you know, like it makes a difference that you have a, 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 a layer, a small layer in Congress, for example, who are, you know, calling out APAC, right? <laughs> like that, that, that makes a difference, you know, and breaking the consensus around support for Israel, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying that it's not better that that's happening than if it wasn't happening. I'm saying that it's happening under a party that has and continues to undermine and co-op independent political movements. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm, and, yeah. and, and, and you know, I'm not even saying we should push Sanders to anything. I'm saying that we should be the people who are doing that, doing these policies and running under our own name. And and mm-hmm. and also just just to speak since we're at. UTLA. I mean, the ISO, rest in peace, was, um, they were in UTLA really deep. But, in my opinion, they were super tied to the leadership. And they didn't have independent political... Tied to the UTLA leadership? Correct. And you, you don't approve of Alex and company? No, I'm not... Well, I mean, they're the leadership of the union. I mm-hmm. think that the socialists should, should try to become leaders of unions. I'm simply remarking about um, socialists in unions and how social, socialists can and, and perhaps should consider participating in unions. And I'm saying that socialists, when we participate in our unions, when we participate in workplaces, that we should do it in our own name as socialists, not as we're supporting this progressive Democrat who has a lot of support, not as we're supporting a Green Party person who has a lot of support, but that we're saying that we're opposed to the system of capitalism, not that we're just trying to make it better. Um, I mean, we do want to fight for reforms that make people's lives better, but for the goal of the working class and oppressed people controlling society. And just one last little point is like when folks talked about the new left, I want to make sure also we mention that 
it wasn't just student movements, there were groups of oppressed people that were also struggling, but that was also part of their issue with the, ex with the exception of drum in Detroit, that a lot of the political and social movements that were happening were not based in workplaces. And I feel like that's something that we can try to connect with, that we, when we, we can call for example, political strikes against police brutality. If that was like, like, if people decided to start to do that or against deportations, so we're also oppressed and we're working class. Anyway, that, that was just the point I wanted to make sure to make. Okay. Um, I agree a lot with what the comrade said in, in a kind of general sort of way and the necessity for open socialists in the labor movement and, in, and politically more generally. But I actually think the situation is much worse than she thinks or much better than she thinks because um, if you look around the world, the situation is not much different from here. You have socialist parties everywhere who are equally or even worse than the Democratic Party. I mean, it, I don't want to get into the competition, but I mean, you know, I don't think, I, I don't know if you'd say the Labor Party under Tony Blair was better or worse. I mean, it, it, was, it, it was neck and neck. And then if you look at, if you look at across Europe, what, what social democracy stands for. So, or if you look in Southern Europe, where we've had a few chances of, of actual major class struggle, like in Greece, the social, the so-called socialist party has crushed it. So on, the one, so on the one hand, you might say, don't, you know, don't complain about this situation because we're no worse off than Europe. Of course, what that's saying is we, and I think we, you know, we have to look at it kind of uh, straightforwardly, we are at the beginning. And it's not like we're behind. It's just the working class movement has suffered. A, I don't know that you would say a, a, a world historical <laughs> defeat. It's more like it's dribbled into, you know, into oblivion. And that is the same with socialist movements. So we are at a starting point. And I think we have to ask the question from that, you know, that raises a whole bunch of questions. Even under the best of circumstances, do we think that we can move from a dynamic labor movement to a transformation, say, of the Democratic Party or the building of a, a, a socialist movement? I think it's a very difficult question because if you look at, I agree with you, there was a moment, maybe a year, in which the Communist Party, Socialists, and so on, had the opportunity, possibly, to build a third party because they could at once have a, have a party that was huge. Uh, you know, if, if they had really tried to take the labor movement of the CIO and break from the Democratic Party. So one moment, 1935 or 1936, 1936. after that, so at, because at that point, you could have a viable third party. But after that, which could be, so you could transform that into a third party. But at this point, in the, in the uh, American scene, the idea of a third party 
with the first past the post election problem is exceedingly hard. And I think for us to say the Democratic Party is, you know, uh, is off limits is fine. But then what's the alternative? I mean, I'm I'm saying that I'm dubious. I guess I'm saying my only hope at this moment is can't be a third party because the third party will split what you know what already you know what the little that exists and it will make it even harder look at nader if would you really recommend um sanders leave so these are horrible alternatives and i sort of want to one last point in this which is that i think we're going to also have to ask ourselves about the working class, not whether we're oriented to the working class. That goes without saying. We have to be. But is the working class throughout, out, you know, outside of Asia, where you have a dynamic industrial working class where the things are still going, <coughs> is there a, a straightforward way forward simply through working class action? And I would, I would say that we have to be seriously thinking about a combination of you know, standard class struggle, if you will, and fights that are working class struggles, but at an angle from, from the workplace. Struggles about health care, about um, child care. About social revolution. <laughs> well, no, it's not social, but I think a lot of it is social reproduction stuff that is going on outside. And so we might be looking at, and I'll stop, we might be looking at a situation where the way forward might be a little bit more in, this, um, in these movements that we've seen, which are quite different, not only the movements of the squares, but the, what's going on in, you know, in France now, that very amorphous, but clearly work movement, mass movement of workers. So we're in a new world, and I think nothing is clear as an, uh, nothing that all the conquests we made, our, our tendencies, they're not enough, they're nowhere near enough to, um, you know. Uh, well, I'm the optimist. Thank you, Robert Brenner. Your question. Hey, man, I appreciate the history lesson, but uh, I guess my question is, you're talking about in America there's been a split between, you know, the working class labor party and, you know, leftist politics. And so I guess, you know, my interactions with my peers now, you know, it seems that the politics are there. The the hardest step for a lot of us is going to be actually organizing our labor. And so for a lot of these new emerging types of labor you know, I guess the biggest question for me is, you know, I kind of don't care about what happened in the past unless we can use those lessons to kind of move forward and say, like, yes, you know, based on our successes in the past, we can do this in the future. Because I'd say that's the biggest thing facing us right now. Okay. I'm going to hold off. Okay. Um, there is an article by, or I should say a writer from Jake, Jacobin that spoke about how a working class party has two basic tasks. One is to organize the working class to fight and also then 
to project the power of an organized working class in the political arena. And he argued that in a, with a labor party, it, it can do both. But in the United States, as Robert Brenner said, given the dynamics of the electoral process, we may need one organization that works to build socialists within the working class, to organize them in the working class, but a second structure in which that organization in the working class can project their power in the electoral arena. And I think that's one of the strategies that DSA is attempting to do. Right. Okay, I'm coming... Uh, the, the point the point I was going to make um, touched on a number of things that various people made. Um, a lot of the discussion about kind of the upsurge and class struggle admits the fact that it's it's really consolidated the strike statistics like overwhelmingly in, t- in teacher strikes. I mean, as important as teacher strikes are, I, I, the point I would make is that in, to, in order for like there to be a fundamental b- shift in the balance of class forces in this country, it's really going to have to kind of uh, you know. A movement in the industrial core of the economy, and I think this, a, a discussion about the industrial proletariat is essential to that. And a lot, you know, a lot has to be said that you know the United States still has the second strongest manufacturing economy in the entire world. It was only passed by China in like uh, 2010. Um, you know, there are many parts of the country. I'm from the U.S. South. I've I worked in in big plants and in, in factories in, in this deep south where the you know manufacturing economy is massively expanding and workers in industry are completely trampled underfoot right now mm-hmm. and i mean that's something that the you know to what extent a strike movement actually exists in this country it does not touch the workers with the greatest objective power and i was just um i don't know i'd like to hear some reflection on on that like to, to what extent uh you know how how is the labor movement going to expand to to workers in the industrial core of the economy, because I think that that's really what could create the type of shift that we would like to see. That was a great discussion. There's two more here. So um, let me go here, and then I'll come in. Um, I believe May 15th is the 100th year anniversary of the Winnipeg general strike, and so I was wondering, in general, what lessons are there to learn, but specifically, since we are getting a lot of uh, labor organizing from populations vulnerable to deportation, what, if anything, we could learn to avoid what happened in Winnipeg with anti-immigration laws that sent Eastern Europeans, specifically unmarried women, uh, back to the motherland and how we could protect our comrades who we're learning from here. Okay. And you got the last one. So my my question is, um, and I think, Julia, you sort of hinted at it, but um, what are the racial dynamics in Canada that um, are impacting the labor movement there? because it's something that I've been thinking about is the history of the U.S. has two really large traditions, the socialist movement, and I include in there the Communist Party, and then the organizations of color that, that uh, especially through the long civil rights movement, that are essentially working class organizations pushing for civil rights, uh, and that they've been, uh, at certain points, they've been, they, they've been merged uh, such as when the teachers, the teachers union in New York City that was part of the Communist Party actively argued that union rights and, and racial justice were one and the same. And that was the great success of the of UTLA strike. And so I'm curious what because I think we're missing this point is uh, the impact that race and class uh, are almost synonymous at this point. Um, so, yeah. OK, a lot of questions. There's a, a lot of great stuff to respond to. I'm not going to respond to to everything because I think we should have more discussion. 
one of the key things that sort of unites a lot of the questions and comments is this question of, you know, how do, so, so it goes back to how do we as socialists sort of relate to the working class or how do we operate in, in the working class? And this goes back to the question of the rank and file strategy and, um, and, you know, how do you project socialist politics, right? And I think it's important to keep in mind sort of our model of how we think social change happens, right? In the sense that um, it's important to resist the, the very common understanding that people have that sort of people sort of change their minds, you know, because they get exposed to better ideas and then act differently. And it's actually completely the opposite. Um, people are put in situations where they act differently as a result of being in, thrown into mass struggles. And then out of that, um, develop different ideas about how the world works. Right? <laughs> and Marx. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, and so what does that mean in terms of our work? Well, I think that one of the things, if you look at sort of, so, so I talked earlier about sort of this rank-and-file strategy and, and, and the mixed bag. And I think one of the key things of the, the, the organizations that survived, and here I'm thinking about TDA, I'm thinking about Labor Notes in particular, is that they didn't focus their work around waving a red flag and sort of talking about how they're socialists and how we need more socialism in the United States or, and, and around the world. Um, <coughs> they focused their work on building this militant minority. They focused their work on building workers' capacity to fight in the workplace with the understanding that if you get workers in motion, if you get workers fighting, uh, their ideas about the world will change. And so it's not to say that these people were like afraid to admit that they were socialists. They weren't like, hiding it. It just wasn't the thing that they were leading with. And this differed from a lot of the other groups of that time period who also went into the factories um, and focused their efforts primarily, and there's some variation here, but primarily on sort of recruiting to their particular left group. Um, and so I think that you know we, we need to think, and it's not just in terms of like how we relate as individual socialists, but just in terms of like what does this whole project of rebuilding this labor left link look like? It's not going to be from you know talking more about socialism. It's going to be from building stronger movements that can fight and that will sort of challenge people's understanding of what what they're capable of, and. Um, so and then so so there's two other things I want to mention. One is is Ben's point about, which is a crucial point to understand here, which is that you know that that the 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 strike waves we've seen have re remained in amongst teachers for the most part um, to date. Uh, and as you can see from this graph, you know. I mean, aggregate union density in the U.S. is around 10 percent. In the private sector, it's around six percent, really probably closer to five percent. Um, it's really uh, grim. And penetrating that, those sectors is going to be critical um, for, for movements. Uh, I guess what I would say is that um, it's also at the same time important not to, not to um, 
diminish the importance of the strikes that have occurred and the, and the feedback effects that they can have. Precisely going back to what I was saying about sort of just what is part of people's sense of what's possible, right? And because you, you see that where it, you've seen that with the teacher strikes where it's like, oh, the teachers go on strike and win this. Maybe I can do that too, right? It just becomes part of the sort of realm of what is considered possible. And um, so we haven't seen that on a large scale yet, but it's at least pushing us in the right direction. And then um, Jack's question about race and class, which is, again, a crucial thing. I think that, you know, that, that is sort of one of the... Um, you can't understand U.S. Um, politics without understanding the, the deeply intertwined relations of class and, and, and race. And um, I was talking about it earlier in my remarks. You, you mentioned the, the, the Communist Party. And I think it's important to understand that you know, parts of the CIO and the, the Communist Party of the 1930s were, in some ex respects, sort of the first civil rights movement. And this goes back to... So, so the reason that you get a civil rights movement in the 1960s or 1950s that emerges primarily out of the black church and has a primarily middle-class leadership is precisely because the anti-racist fighters of the CIO are basically wiped out. And that both delays the onset of the U.S. civil rights movement, because you had the threat of a march on Washington for jobs and freedom in the early 1940s. Um, you had um, you know, this campaign to organize the South that faltered precisely because of this, um, you know, Operation Dixie that was precisely faltered in large part precisely because of this alliance of the Democratic Party um, such that, you know, that ran headlong into the Southern Democrats um, and basically undermined the CIO's ability to win that. And, you know, had we seen those things, had we seen Operation Dixie succeed, had we seen a successful march for jobs and freedom in the 1940s, you know, American politics would have been fundamentally different um, and um, and so that really is a gets to the crucial point that sort of the linkage that that the left the, the one of the things that the labor left linkage meant concretely was precisely taking much more seriously this link between um, class movement and racial justice and so part of rebuilding this labor left link must involve rebuilding that link as well. Great. I want to thank everybody. It's been a terrific discussion. If you can buy Barry's book, do it. And I'm sure we're all going to hang out a little bit yes. and continue this conversation. Thanks so much. And thanks to DSA. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman, and you've been listening to a conversation I had with Barry Eidlin and a live discussion that followed at UTLA in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.